there's no harm in doing some good for your pigs, uh, especially now that we have new information, right? And that's what uh, hopefully technology is bringing to us in the swine industry is more information so we can make better informed decisions. I, I would just add, focus on the gut as well. But the gut is important and it's, you know, it goes beyond what we thought it was. A whole new era of communication in the Canadian swine industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the Canadian and global swine industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Our nutrition group includes four companies, Nutrition Athena, Shakespeare Mill, Farmhouse, and Nutrition Partners, which serve swine producers all across Canada. Swine Veterinary Partners comprises four well-established clinics across Canada, Precision Veterinary Services, Premier SHP, Demeter Ontario, and Demeter Quebec. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. Welcome to the Swine It Podcast Show Canada, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the Canadian and global swine industry. Working with nature and not against it, piglets fed AX3 see significant and improved feed efficiency. Producers know the reality of needing to reduce antibiotic and zinc use. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible novel protein that promotes improved in barn performance, piglet health, and minimizes the need for zinc in the diet. For more information, visit www.protecta.com. That's www.protecta.com. So welcome everybody to SwineNet Canada podcast. I am Dan Columbus and I'll be your host for today's episode. And with me today, I have Dr. Mateus Costa, who is an assistant professor, hopefully for not much longer, uh, in that he'll be promoted, not fired. Uh, at the Western College of Veterinary Medicine here in Saskatoon. So welcome, uh, Mateus. Thanks, Dan. <laughs> yeah, I'm hoping for that. <laughs> <laughs> Next time we have you on, we'll update your, your introduction. So, <laughs> Yeah, hopefully the correct one. Not like, oh, he got fired since we last talked. So, <laughs> uh, so before we get into today's topic, uh, I'll just ask, because some people might not be familiar with who you are and kind of where, where you've been and what you do, to give a little bit of an introduction to yourself and your journey so far. Fun question. Um, it's going to be a bit convoluted, so we may have to draw something on the screen when they added this, like Netflix shows do now. <laughs> but um, I started off by, I come from a urban family, no one looking to animals other than perhaps a cat, a stray cat. Like my my dad actually did not allow us to have pets growing up. So it was a bit of a struggle growing up because I really wanted to have pets. Uh, and somehow I decided to go into pet school. Don't, don't really remember why. Uh, always liked animals, but never was allowed to have them at home. So I was always visiting farms and stuff randomly, but nothing crazy. Uh, vet school in Brazil is actually like in like almost downtown. It's the middle of four million people city, so it's nothing special. Uh, but they did have a very interesting pathology program and and quite a bit of um, outreach, which made it fun for me. I I really enjoyed that. And during one of these outreach, uh, I was allowed to be involved in a research project, and 
I don't know. I, I guess I annoyed one of my professors so much with questions that she said, why don't you do a project to answer that question? I said, what? Sure, let's do it. Had, had no idea what I was doing. Uh, she did mentor me through it. And I realized I really enjoyed attempting to answer some questions. <laughs> and I also realized most of the times we fail, but that was part of the thing as well. Uh, and then I was lucky to be sent to the University of Minnesota back in, I am getting old, uh, 2009 <laughs> to work with uh, Dr. Simone Oliveira. Um, some people may be familiar with her and her work. Some people may not, but she was a leader and a, an expert in swine diseases at the University of Minnesota College of Vet Med. I was lucky to go there while she was still there, um, helped her current students with research projects, did a bunch of pathology, and uh, ended up working with some turkey as well while I was there. It was funny. They had this project on turkey and clostridium. So um, anyway, it was kind of my first approach to production medicine. It was going there and being exposed to her program and what was going on. So it was great. Saw saw some turkey, pigs, and, and found that it was super interesting and for some reason, there was not a lot of people interested in it. I always felt like we, there was a need for more people um, when it came to swine medicine in general and production animals. I guess it's reflected now in the current vet, vet med situation in North America. Uh, but there was a sparkle. And then Simone really inspired me. The work she was doing at the time was pioneering molecular diagnostics in, with, in bacterial diseases. And that was fun to watch. And she was an amazing person to work with. Um, went back home and finished my DVM degree, and I knew I wanted to get out of Brazil for a bit and uh, try out science outside Brazil. You may not may not have been there before, but there are a lot of limitations to doing science in Brazil. Uh, and then I was planning to go back to Minnesota, but uh, life happened, and then I ended up coming to Canada because I guess Minnesota was not cold enough, so I decided to come to Saskatchewan. <laughs> Which no one tells you. No one absolutely tells you that Saskatchewan is that cold. And if you go on the Wikipedia webpage for Saskatoon, it will tell you it has the most sunlight hours of any other city in Canada. So as a Brazilian, I was like, oh, if there's sun, it can be cold, right? No one tells you at minus 40, it's blue skies and sunny, right? No one tells you that. Anyway, so I come to Saskatchewan, did a PhD here, um, and noticed it was very cold and said, well, I'm not going to stay here. So I moved to the uh, to the Netherlands at Utrecht University right after I was done my PhD and spent a year there uh, as assistant professor. It was an amazing experience just being exposed to the swine industry in the Netherlands and Europe in general, seeing a completely different world, like completely from any perspective, management to disease epidemiology to disease pressures. It was incredible just watching it and being like, holy, this is different. Um, and then again, life happened and then I decided to come back to Saskatchewan for a bit uh, and do a residency in swine medicine. And that was um, a big challenge at the time, that's for sure. At the end of my residency, I was hired as assistant professor at the University of Minnesota. So I completed a full loop when there is a student in 2009. And by 2019, I was back as professor and it was fun. Um, and then I think the one thing no one ever thought about happened, which was the pandemic. And that hit kind of close to home. So we decided to come back to Canada. And I've been at University of Saskatchewan since 2020, since the middle of the pandemic, which was, again, not a fun thing to do. So in a nutshell, that is me and uh, 
what I have been, where I have been so far. So all roads lead to Saskatoon, even though we're cold. <laughs> I, I try to go away. I keep trying to go away from Saskatoon and somehow I'm stuck my head. I, it's funny. I do warn all my students that it's going to be cold when they're here, but I try not to bring them in in January so they like ease into the cold. <laughs> I know, but they don't. Most if if you're not if you did not grow up in Canada or anywhere where it's cold, you don't understand. You're like, oh, you know, we get cold. They're like, yeah, it's cold. Whatever. It's, but it's, it's different. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't know how to segue into today's topic from that. Um, so we'll just move into it. I think uh, we were discussing before, and this is an, an area that, you know, we, we both kind of have focused on kind of out of uh, necessity with the industry and a lot from the removal of antibiotics, at least as growth promotion and, and the overall trying to get um, reduced our use anyway, but when it comes to gut health and specifically uh, with your background with looking at pathogens and how we can, uh, how, what is that interaction? So I know you've been doing some work with, uh, or, or want to talk about uh, strep and and gut health. So maybe we'll just start there. Okay. okay. So here's a question for you. I guess this is going to be a good discussion because you're an expert in it as well. So when you think about gut health, because I found gut health such a, umbrella term for a gazillion things we can talk about right so like how do you define gut health for your audience so that when we when people are watching this everybody's coming in from the same perspective this is something i ask in the comprehensive exams i'm not on that side of the table (laughs) but you're right it is something that i think means something different to, to multiple people right in my in my mind, I think, and I, I don't know, I didn't realize I wasn't going to be the host on this one. Um, <laughs> it's that the, the, the gut is functioning in the way that allows it to do what it's supposed to do, which is absorb nutrients, but also provide a barrier to, to pathogens, right? And have that interaction with the outside world, right? Because technically it is outside the body, even though it's in, it's going through. So, I mean, in my mind, that's what gut health means i don't know maybe you have something different no i totally agree one thing that i i always i don't know it's again like i think we have a very particular audience here so i think we're fine talking about things like this but i think that gut health like you said is it's making sure the gut is working properly one of the challenges i think is what what does it mean working properly because (laughs) there is variations right and i'll give an example and it's funny because when i talk to students about this and you know, we're conducting trials and, you know, you bring pigs in at a biosafety level two facility, you expect everything to be clean and everyone should be doing great. It's almost like a hotel, right? So, and we often see, you know, not diarrhea, but there is a variation in fecal consistency, right? To put it very scientifically. So I'm saying that sometimes pigs poop things a bit more hard and sometimes a bit loose. And then students get instantly concerned and it would come to me and say, oh, I think we're having diarrhea. We need to look into this. Should we treat? What should we do? And I guess the response is, I don't think we poop very, very solid feces every day, but we don't have diarrhea every day, do we? So it's, it's, I, that's why I think it's hard to determine gut health because there is so many variations, right? And it doesn't mean it's unhealthy. It just means that what may be healthy for me in responding to grapes that i ate this morning may be unhealthy for you because for whatever reason there is individualities right i just find that the term gut health is it's it's so variable right 
like an immunologist would say, well, it's obviously about the, res- the immune response to the gut microbiome and allergens, right? And then a nutritionist comes from a different perspective. And it, I just find like it's so, it's so hard, right? It's so challenging to bring up something that covers everything. Well, it's like you said, even when it comes to, well, then how, you, how do you evaluate it, even if you have in your mind what gut health is? And what do those biomarkers or what biomarkers do you even look at to evaluate? And I mean, this comes back to some of the research that we've been doing and trying to do a meta-analysis on on impact of, of uh, diet on gut health and finding out that there's no consistency in how people evaluate the biomarkers. So we have no idea what we're supposed to be measuring. And it's not it, it's inconsistent to, the, to enough that we can't even do a meta-analysis because we don't have enough data across multiple studies. Um, and, and like you said, what, what is healthy? Because even in another study we're doing in some of our preliminary work, you know, we, we've, we've adjusted, we have eight different diets and all the pigs are coming back and it's kind of all over the place, but they're all healthy. So what, what is, what is health, you know, when it comes to the gut? I love the perspective. They're all healthy. Right. And I think that it gets even more confusing. Lately, we've thrown this thing around, which is microbiome, right? Like, oh, hey, microbiome is going to fix the world, right? It's all about our microbiome. You are where you eat. We're, we're fixing this. And then it's so funny. They did this experiment where they followed these two guys through a year. So essentially, every day, they had to somehow collect some poop, and they sequenced the microbiome from their poop every single day for two years. Super cool. Interesting and expensive experiment. But um, And then, obviously, the results come in, and it's essentially – it's everywhere, Right. There's so much variation within these two guys. And one of them uh, during this two year period travels and during one of his travels gets diarrhea. And it's so funny. There's all this variation. And then, boom, this guy has diarrhea and like his microbiome just like shrinks to absolutely no diversity whatsoever. And then it recovers, but different from what it was before. But this guy was perfectly healthy. Right. He has those statements and all this uh, medical reports saying he was healthy on this day and we looked at him but it's different from his previous health you know it's his health was dynamic and changed over time so i i believe you when you do meta-analysis that there's not enough data because holy there's so much going on in your gut that by the end you're by the time you're trying to identify and profile things it's too complex right so with that being said, <laughs> I guess now we're going to look into how you've evaluated <laughs> gut health and, and some of the stuff that you've been finding in, in your work. <laughs> Here's my two cents. It's, it's obviously a very limited and one-sided perspective on gut health, right? Like I tend to think, you know, and, and I think there's, again, there's a lot of discussion. A lot of people will listen to what I have to say and say and think that I'm completely wrong and it's... It is what it is what my perspective allows me to see, right? And that's why in science we try to collaborate because everybody has their own point of view. And if hopefully if we have enough people looking at something, we'll see a bit further. But when when we think about gut health, it's really it needs to go beyond gut, right? We want to see specific markers. We want to see you know the whole thing about epithelial lining and epithelial resistance and that the epithelium is there, but you know, it's natural for piglets in the first 24 hours to absolutely have no epithelial protection whatsoever, right? That's physiological. They need to absorb like large proteins and cells from their mom. So when we're looking to that, we, you know, we often try to see beyond just the gut. So it starts with, 
is the gut actually visually looking normal? Uh, I'm talking about histopathology, something as simple as that. But it makes so difficult from a scientific perspective because you can't, or you could, we could try and biopsy small intestine and colons in pigs, but that would make the study so expensive and challenging to perform because if we're, you know, putting a pig under GA, bringing it in, doing biopsy, bringing it back, and, you know, that induces stress, there's all these different these factors, right? But so in most of most cases, we do need to euthanize an animal, right? So it does make things a bit more challenging. You know, when do you euthanize your animal to collect your sample? What is your proxy for gut health or bad gut health? Like, is it just loose tools or is there more things? Because we know that stuff happens before you have the, the main culprit of diarrhea, right? We know that there is days sometimes that things are going wrong in the gut. And then you see, for example, bloody diarrhea and swine dysentery. So from my perspective is we a, need to understand what happens before the storm hits because the storm hitting or, you know, having major issues in gut health is it's just at the end point, right? It's easy, right? You think about salmonella and you say, oh, yes, here is, you know, enteritis and here is, well, watery diarrhea. Yes, that is correct. That is the worst case scenario. You're going to get a bunch of damaged tissue. You're going to see all your biomarkers for disease and stress going up because it's already there. But I find that gut health needs to begin before that happens, right? We want to know it's the process of gut health. It's the process of not gut health of, or the process of um, disestabilizing gut health, right? You need to shake things in the gut. And because it's so complex, it, you don't know which dial you need to turn to, to, or you don't know which dial is being turned by a pathogen or agent that leads to disease, right? So it's for my end, we start with the most, what I think is the most basic thing, which is look at the organ and look at the tissue, right? So gross post-mortem lesions, but not every single disease will lead to a lesion that's visually um, identifiable, right? Sometimes it's one molecule in one cell that leads to more chloride being secreted towards the lumen, and that's diarrhea. But it looks normal. It's just too much chloride being popped out. Otherwise, everything's fine. So it's too complex. And I say when we think about gut health, we break things down as much as we can. And we try to focus, you know, and not answer all the questions at once because it's it's a puzzle that I don't think anyone in this planet has been able to put it together yet. I think the time will come, but for now, we don't understand enough to say, you know, do this, don't do that. There's always going to be variations and outliers. Yeah, it's interesting that you're pointing out what you mentioned lesions and that it reminds me of one of the first projects that we worked on and you were insistent that we needed to look at lesions and we were arguing that we're like, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> so even back then we were like, okay, well, what are the outcomes we're going to focus on? And, and, you know, a lot of it comes down to the logistics of the study. I know. And it's hard, right? Because like we said, like if you can't euthanize the animals, for example, it's a nutritional study or you want to see what happens long-term uh, after the storm has gone, right? A lot of those diseases have long-term performance uh, consequences, right? It's not just about that one day we had diarrhea. It's about the next 100 days that they're gaining X many kilos, right? So it's hard. We can't kill animals. We can't look at lesions. It's hard to understand gut health because it's so dynamic. So, but I, one thing I wanted to say, and I'm sure we're going to fight over this later, over a beer. <laughs> <laughs> it is, 
you can't just base this on VLI length and crypt depth. <laughs> oh, I won't argue you with that. I don't. I hate that. <laughs> you, you know, some of your previous students, we have very, very length conversations on how we should we should not just focus on that. <laughs> No, and it, it's funny that you meant because I that is something that I argue with all my students, with with collaborators, with everything that it, we are not going to waste time and money doing morphology because I think it, it's been done to death, and I don't think it actually says tells you much, right? Um, but it, it's funny because in our meta analysis, that's the one thing that we were able to find that has been consistently done, that people have done villas height and crypt depth. But in, in the past 20 years, that's what has been done. And I agree with you. You look at studies and someone had, I think for some studies, that's a great thing to do, right? But you look at the literature, that's kind of the standard, I would say. Don't you think? Well, and I think because a lot of it is, especially if you go in the past, when we talk about gut health, we're talking about nutrient absorption. So if that's what you want to do, you're looking at the villas, right? But if you want to look at barrier function and how this is going to interact with or with diseases and pathogens and stuff like that, then that's when you need to look at barrier and use in production and, and the immunology and all that other aspects that have basically kind of been ignored because, and maybe it's because of the focus on production outcomes and, and you know, that is, we got to get that pig growing that we focus, that we don't focus on those things. And we assume that if the pig is growing, it's healthy and we're not going to worry about it. Yep. And, you know, maybe that's an approach as well. It's if it's healthy and it's growing, maybe, you know, we shouldn't change anything. We have the saying in, in football, which is if your team is winning, you don't touch it, right? You're not going to go around playing with things that are working, but we don't understand why our team is winning in most time, most of the time. We don't, right? <laughs> well, the one thing that I say, I'm like, it might be growing okay now, but if you stress with something or something unexpected happens, that's when you're going to fall apart. Right. And, and, you know, that's the, the anecdotally where you hear with the race without any antibiotics and stuff like that is that they kind of go along for a little while, a couple of years and they're okay. And then things start to fall apart. Right. And because a lot of the times at the end of the day, it's because you're still focused on, on growth and, you know, maximizing that and still not really maximizing uh, or looking to optimize the gut health. And that's where I think like your research and stuff, the stuff that I'm doing is, you know, let's, let's focus on something that you might not see that impact on growth, but you are setting your pig up for, for success. Right. And I think one, in my opinion, I, not just my opinion, I think it's well established that the biggest challenge most pigs go through life is weaning, right? They're weaned and we, mess everything up essentially <laughs> press them as much as we can we try to make things as hard as possible for those little guys but um obviously there's new management practices i think one of the things that i'm still uh in all is how we all should be moving towards uh free farrowing and just how interesting that is from a gut health perspective right because you have all this pigless sharing their microbiomes and their moms sharing their microbiomes and less fighting and creep feeding all together and hopefully that moving in as a batch towards nursery and how that can positive or minimize the negative impact of weaning right and i always found that you know one of the things that it, it, it just it goes back to a funny perspective that although we are very technological advanced we should be trying to go back to the you know natural slash physiological perspective which is 
you know, piglets would not be just hanging around with only their dam, right? They are going to be with their sow and 20 other sows that have X many other piglets and they're all living in a community, right? So all of that, in my opinion, it is important. It comes from this free-faring perspective that, hey, you're, here is your little piglet community that is sharing their pathogens and bugs and everything else. And hopefully we can move you all together as a single batch through the production system. And I do think that will minimize disease overall. So coming back from the weaning perspective, though, one of the things we want to talk about today is the, one of the biggest problems we have in the majority of, I would say, or in all countries in this, in this planet, they're producing pork. But, you know, especially when it comes to Western Canada and Canada in general is strep suits, right? I've been able to control disease from a perspective that um, if you don't have one of the major pathogens, uh, strep suits is going to be there regardless, right? 100% of the farms have strep suits. So, like you said, fine-tuning gut health is important, in my opinion, to prevent strep suits from becoming an issue. Yeah. So, I know before we got on here, you said that there's no solutions. <laughs> but I'm going to post, I, I, I'm going to press you a little bit to be like, okay, well, what what do you think we should be focused on then? Or what are some potential uh, avenues that maybe need to be explored, especially when it comes to strep suits? If this is going to be something that, you know, is a potentially uh, a very difficult situation you could be getting into. Oh, I think it particularly when it comes to strep suits is the fact that I would guess the majority of people are not going to think about gut health and strep suits, right? Strep suits has always been suggested as a respiratory pathogen, right? Which is true. We, we, we did this funny study where we sampled pig eyes for a completely unrelated thing, not focused on pig health at all. But the majority of the bacteria on a pig's eye is Streptococcus suis. And just because it's everywhere in the upper respiratory tract, it, it colonizes it. It's usually during birth. So in the birth canal, they get colonized and you're, you're done for life, right? You're going to have it. So that's why it's so hard, in my opinion, to deal with strep suis. It's because we're now, we, we haven't been thinking about this as a potentially, um, gastrointestinal agent it doesn't cause diarrhea but the gi the gut could be a port of entry and up to a couple of years ago all we thought about was strep suis pneumonia it's a it's a lung issue right it's a respiratory problem but it's not we see more and more now that uh there's some very recent research showing that strep suis is actually able to survive and live in the in the gut right so i don't I don't know if we have a solution. I don't think we do, but I do think that gut health is part of the solution. It's one piece in the puzzle of why am I breaking? Why do I have so many cases of meningitis? It, you know, if there is no cough, well, there's another port of entry here that we've been neglecting for the past decades. And, you know, we're trying to understand that now. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, obvious, obviously, because the research is kind of in the same area, right? That, you know, we need to set that up. And that's the thing. You might not see the benefit. And that makes it hard to then go and promote this to people, right? Because they're like, well, why would I spend more money on this when it's not going to, it doesn't help their bottom line at the end of the day. But having, making that argument, right, that, well, it could, 
<laughs> but you need to be you need to be willing to put that investment into it to make sure that they're developing properly that they're not you know you're not setting them up for failure and i think that in general i mean as as humans we tend to respond very well to things that are jumping to the eye right so you know when you're making an advertisement for a new product you you want to make it very easy to see right it needs to be good contrast on the photo black and white or colors that contrast right and i think strap suits is the opposite of that it, it it's unlikely to be causing this huge mortality and oh man like we're losing hundreds of pigs today because of it. it's not but it's that background endemic mortality that's always there you know that extra three five percent of piglets you lose in nursery that we almost learn to ignore and maybe you know that's a bad way of putting it but it's it's more like we're out of tools to deal with it because we haven't looked into it and made a lot of progress lately but now we think we are we have a new aspect of it that we just you know didn't really evaluate so far, which is you know strepsis could be causing disease through the GI, and um, we haven't really like dealt with it that way. It's always been respiratory. So, so when it comes to the gut health, because that's the our, our theme for today. Uh, have there been, and I know you've done work in this area quite a bit, so are there certain aspects of it that you think we should be focusing on when we do this research? Are there like interventions that you found that are particularly helpful when it comes to the development and maintenance of gut health? Uh, just, you know, let, throw, throw something about, you know, what, what can we, what can we do? <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's some stuff we're doing already and it's, but we can do a bit better. I think one thing that it's um, easy to do and a lot of the farms are employing already. And if it's done properly, it will, like you said, we have those, those good results that we don't see, but it's there. It's uh, creep feeding. Creep feeding from my, from my perspective, will just allow the microbiome to mature a bit earlier. It allows the gut to change its and, you know, enzyme capability and be stimulated a bit earlier so that when the shift comes, you know, it's, it's, and it's an abrupt shift. One morning you're there with mom drinking milk, one afternoon, it's you for yourself fighting over with your cousins and, you know, trying to eat something and drink cold water, right? So allowing them to kind of get exposed to what that life will be like a little earlier, it helps mature the gut, you know, from a, not just the gut health perspective, from the microbiome perspective. Uh, so if there's anything we can do uh, management wise, that it's something, you know, if you're not doing your farm today, it shouldn't be. Uh, a very challenging thing to do is lighter piglets be exposed to, you know, very good quality solid feed in the days before they're weaned, right? That, and again, they're not, it's unlikely they're going to eat that food as their main nutritional source, but if they get some of that in their guts, they will start turning dials there, you know, with a positive outcome. I was going to say that's something we could discuss over a beer later. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So this, this is coming mostly from a microbiome and um, I guess a lesion perspective, right? So when we look at the guts of piglets that has been recently weaned and we compare their microbiome and literally the inflammation, we would see less of that in piglets that were allowed to have creep feed versus those that were not. And the, the microbiome of the, those with creep feeding just resembled a more mature microbiome, a pulse weaning microbiome than the ones that were never exposed to solid feed 
and their microbiome just resembles a more suckling piglet, like a baby piglet type of microbiome. So it's coming from that perspective. I can't really tell about weight gain or anything like that. <laughs> it doesn't help weight gain, <laughs> as far as I've been able to show. I, I'm interested, though, in that in that study that you mentioned, right? Did you specifically look at pigs that had been identified as eaters of the creep feed when you measured that? Or was that just like randomly selected in any kind of anybody in that litter? Oh, in that study, we were interested in the ones that had uh, strep suis, right? So we were obviously focusing on strep suis piglets, uh, but it was randomly selected mostly because you don't really know until you have disease who's going to break with it. So we had to somehow sample animals. Uh, so no, we don't know if they were the creep feeders or not, but if they were exposed to or had the presence of creep feeding their crate, they had, there was a shift, right? That we could see. Yeah. It's just interesting because all the stuff that I've looked at is the benefit, any benefit that is observed with creep feed, it's the ones that are actually eating it, but showing who's eating it is very difficult as well. Uh, right. There's, there's no good way. Yeah, absolutely. It's hard. Not everyone's going to be curious. That's why I think it's important that you make it attractive, right? You don't put it in a somewhere that, you know, not every pig's going to have access to. It needs to be a very good quality feed. You can't just expect them to eat a finisher type of pellet because they're not going to find that fun. It needs, and again, it, 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 as long as they get one mouthful, that will, in my opinion, start triggering something, right? One mouthful a day and they trigger something. And hopefully by the time they're weaned, things will be a bit better for those guys. So I, I guess on, on this topic and looking a little bit into the future, and I can ask you this because I know it's coming uh, <laughs> with the research that, that uh, well, I'm collaborating with you on it, right? Where we're going to be looking at different ways of looking at gut health and, and reducing antibiotic use and maybe just give you the opportunity to kind of discuss that project and what we're going to be you know, looking at and what people can maybe look forward to the next time we have you on as an associate professor. <laughs> Boy, professor. Uh, but, uh, okay, so that project is actually quite interesting. It's again, it's a huge collaboration, mostly um, digging in uh, research from Western Canada. It's it's exciting because it's not a really one tool fits it all type of approach. It's a very different and kind of a holistic approach from the perspective that uh, we'll be looking into not just early life microbiome uh, modulation. So what can we do when, you know, piglets are, are still suckling versus later in life? So uh, is this, you know, modulating the microbiome by the use of the usual, you know, approaches, probiotics, prebiotics, but also trying to change the way pigs modulate the microbiome, right? So we know that the microbiome is there and the host can play with it, right? Some days we suppress one type of bacteria because we know that's a bad type of bacteria and will lead to disease. So if we play with the way the host is doing that, so if we play the way pigs are suppressing or, or you know, harnessing the microbiome, we think we can prevent disease, right? Every time there is disease and it's if it's lead it, you know, by an infectious agent, there will be some sort of um, disruption. In, the, in gut health, and that will include the gut microbiome. There's just so much crosstalk, right, between the gut and its microbiome that we think that either by influencing early on microbiome, so pre-weaning, uh, pre or in targeted approach such as, hey, we're going through an outbreak of swine dysentery, or we're going through an outbreak uh, of filiitis, 
we we think we can modulate that enough that you may not be able to eradicate the disease, which it's unlikely to be achieved anyway without the use of antibiotics or vaccination and sort of some other form of management practice. But if we can mitigate to the point that you have the agent or your pigs have the agent, it's present, you would be tested positive, but you're not seeing the disease impact as, as much as you would, you would if you're not doing anything. But that would be without using antibiotics, right? The whole goal is we mitigate it without using antibiotics so that pigs have, you know, good welfare. There is no clinical issues. They are, you know, behaving normal and we can put them through the system while still preserving this very important resource that antibiotics are. Looking, looking forward to it. Hopefully we get some, some solutions that we can put out there, <laughs> but also like with anything, right. Find me some, some interesting results that maybe were unexpected when, when we start looking at this, but Clear, clearly of, of benefit in the future. Um, well, I I think we're getting close to the time that we generally <laughs> bring these to a close. So I'll just, uh, before we get to the everybody's favorite three questions, uh, I'll just say, you know, if there's uh, a take-home message that you want the listeners today to, to kind of go home with, what would that be? I think we probably like talked about so many different things, but I think the take-home message is, there is evidence now that strep suis can be uh, can enter the pig through the GI, so the gut. So be aware of that. If you don't think you know pigs don't have diarrhea, they're fine. But you think you can help your piglets through the weaning process and early nursery phases, you know, remember that's a way to prevent strep suis associated disease. And there is there is no harm in doing some good for your pigs. Uh, especially now that we have new information, right? And that's what uh, hopefully technology is bringing to us in the swine industry is more information so we can make better informed decisions. I, w- I would just add, focus on the gut as well. But the gut is important and it's, you know, it goes beyond what we thought it was. It's time for our famous three. So before I let you go, we have three questions that we're going to ask it. We ask everybody that comes on the show, I'll give you a little bit of warning. So hopefully you thought of uh, some answers. Um, so our first one is what your favorite swine related uh, book or resources. See that one. It's funny. You kind of gave me a warning about that. I was like, man, what is my favorite swine resource? And un- not unfortunately, but unexpectedly, I would say my favorite resource is not a book is not a website. It's people. Uh, when I find something I don't really know or I, I'm not quite sure how to deal with it, I reach out to people who is they are usually smarter than I am and have been doing this for a longer period of time and ask them for their wisdoms. Like, I, what is this? Why am I seeing this? It doesn't make sense. And, you know, a, a brief phone call sometimes, an email, whatever you can get out of them. You know, nowadays, to be honest, with internet and, you know, phones connected, you're able to reach out to an expert on the other side of the pond and say, what is this happening? And people will get back to you, right? In this industry, I find that uh, there is no limits. We're such a small industry and there's so very few of us working with specific topics that there is always the will to help. So my favorite resource is people. So again, network, make sure you know people. And if you know people, someone probably saw the same issue you're seeing right now and someone already fixed it. You just need to learn from them. No, that's a different take. I don't think, I think everybody thinks book when, when you ask that question, right? I think you might be the first one that actually says people, but I, I think that's a good response. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm probably wrong then, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can go and reach out and ask what other people think are, is good too. <laughs> um, so our, our next one, maybe a little bit easier, is a favorite book outside of swine, outside of agriculture or vet, right? So this could be anything, something that you particularly enjoyed or you found helpful or however you want to uh, answer. Um, well, I, I think um, there's this guy and most, I don't know if people really know who he is. He was a, a volleyball coach for the Brazil national team for many years. And he used to be a player. Um, and then he he started coaching, and I just I just find what he says to reason, you know, in many different ways. His name is uh, Bernardo Silva, and he wrote a few books. Like one book is called um, "Turning Sweat into Gold," and it's interesting because I only read it when I started coaching swimming, you know, years ago, because uh, I grew up as a as a competitive swimmer. But it really made sense, like it and whatever he said started making sense beyond sports for me. It kind of made sense in regular day-to-day stuff, you know, from raising your kids to raising your students and, you know, talking to people in general. It's like, oh, why would someone have a response like that? You know, just trying to make make sense out of people. So I think, you know, if you, I, I believe there's an English version of that book. If there is not, you know, I'm sure there are podcasts and interviews with that guy because he won three or four Olympic gold medals. And he's a, you know, a, a notorious uh, coach. And it's, it's quite interesting that his take on, uh, you know, consistency and persistency, you know, he's not the tallest guy. He was not the strongest guy, but through, you know, as a regular human being without any particular talent or amazing physical ability, he, he kind of made it through and he shares that. And I find that very helpful. Yeah. I'll have to look that one up. Okay, our final question uh, is when you go back and you look at uh, either leaders in the past or pork producers, if you've worked with them, uh, or current ones that you that are working with, you know, what is an aspect or characteristic of them that uh, the successful ones, because we want to focus on them, that would make you think is something that makes them successful in what they're doing? You know, I think the most important thing is not your social status, not your salary. It's not how many papers you publish or how many, you know, pigs you can finish. It, that doesn't matter. No one cares about that. The successful people, doesn't matter if they're leaders or whatever they do, if they're successful, it's often because they're not major hypocrites and dislikeful people. You know, be nice. They're nice people. They're people you can talk to, you know, and sometimes they are superstars and they still are reachable. Sometimes they're not, but they're reachable. You know, it, it could be that one uh, teacher you had in high school who, you know, it was a leader for you during that year in high school. It doesn't matter who it is. As long as you are personable, you are approachable, you're welcoming. You know, you may not be like that every day because not everyone's perfect and is happy every single day of their lives. But, you know, as long as in general, you're, you're, you're a normal person and you're not like a, you know, a downer. I think that is the main characteristic that any leader needs to have. No, it's good. I always like listening to what people have to say because everybody has a slightly different take on it. So, <laughs> which is great, oh. diversity, right? We want yeah. everybody to be different, or you'll be boring. Yeah, 
And no, nobody cares about the number of papers you publish, except for your tenure committee. They might care. <laughs> they did care. I know that. I had to listen. To make sure I could try to convince them. Hopefully, I did. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Hopefully, we have you on again in the future. As that, not a, not as unemployed, but, but yeah, still employed. You can have me again. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I, I think it's been a great. Uh, conversation. I hope the the audience uh, enjoys it as well. And I'll thank you again for for coming on. It's been they they won't know. It's been about a six month process to get you onto the podcast. So <laughs> it, it's it's been good to fi- to finally get you on. I really enjoyed it. So thanks again for sure. No, thanks for the invite and the patience. It's been uh, extremely busy and unexpected events in the past six months. <laughs> but uh, I'm glad we were able to sit down today and everybody was uh, <laughs> on time and we're here. So terrific. Thanks so much then. Yeah, no problem. Thank you.